You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's reading is from Isaiah 25 through chapter 26, verse 8. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners. As heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all of the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, hey, I got a couple announcements for you. First of all, we want you to be connected to the life of Cormdale Church. And what that means is you need to help us get you connected. We're a church that's scattered throughout the city. We don't have any sort of permanent facility There's a lot of people coming and going, and so you need to help us 
connect with you. So there's two ways that we want to sort of be able to communicate with you. One is through a monthly email that we send out, and the other is through the city, which is sort of a social networking tool. And so uh, if you'll go to the Quorumdale website, cdomaha.com, you'll find this page where you can sign up for both of those things. I just want to encourage you to do that. Um, If you haven't done that, you probably have no idea what's going on in the church because... We have no way of communicating with you, and so just want to invite you to use those means of being connected. Take some initiative there and get that email sent to you. Um, join the city if you uh, would like to do that. The second announcement I have for you is a giving update since the month of May is behind us. And so you'll see uh, every month our goal is 116375 That's what we need to bring in. In May, we were a little behind that at 94583 uh, That means we're not saving any money last month for uh, the building fund, which is not good since we actually would like to purchase the building at some point in time. So uh, that's for you to ponder, pray, consider your part in that, know that information, uh, have that before you as you head into the month of June. All right? If you could live in any city in the world, where would you live? Good answer. But seriously though, any city, what's your criteria for a great city, a desirable city, a place where you'd want to live out the rest of your days? For some of you, maybe that is this city. For some of you, it might not be. Is your criteria for a great city perhaps community. What would make a great city for you is having the people that you love and care about there near you. For some of you, maybe your criteria for what makes a great city is opportunity, a a chance to achieve your dreams and pursue your longings and reach your potential in life. For others of you, maybe what makes a great city is diversity, the chance to be around and rub shoulders with lots of different kinds of people, people from different cultures and backgrounds. And so what would make a truly great city for you is just a lot of cultural diversity. Whatever your vision is this morning of the ideal city, the prophet Isaiah wants to start there. And then he wants to take that ideal and he wants to sharpen it and refine it and focus it in. Isaiah wants you this morning to envision a city that's better than you ever imagined. Human beings are relentlessly city builders, aren't we? Any place that human beings go, any place they get together, what they end up doing is creating civilization and ultimately building cities. But the problem with the cities that we build, the problem with the cities of men is that they always display both the best and the worst of human potentiality, don't they? Cities are always places of great beauty and great brokenness. They're always places where the best of what it means to be human and the worst of what it means to be human are there side by side. Go to any great city anywhere in the world, and what you will find is art museums, symphonies, cathedrals, and also brothels, loan sharks, drug dealers. For all of our massive attempts at city building throughout all of human history, we have yet to build the perfect city. And yet something in us longs for that city, doesn't it? Something in you longs to live in a place, to be in a place 
where only the best of what it means to be human and none of the worst of what it means to be human is represented. Isaiah wants to tell us this morning a tale of two cities. He wants to contrast for you Babylon and Zion. The city of man and the city of God. He wants you to see the stark difference between the two. Here's how St. Augustine put it almost 1,500 years ago. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly city, by the love of self, even to contempt of God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former glories in itself. The latter glories in the Lord. Two cities, two loves, two glories. Where did Isaiah get this image? He got it from the prophet Isaiah. This is the theme of chapters 24 through 27 in the book that bears Isaiah's name. And what the prophet Isaiah, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to do this morning is he wants to change what you love and what you glory in, which will ultimately change the kind of city that you long for. So let's look first of all at the city of man. Remember what Augustine said, what marks the city of man is the love of self and the contempt of God. The city of man is sort of a a name for all that human beings create out of love for self and with disregard for God. In chapter 24, Isaiah sees all of the earth pictured as one great, vast city that's plunged into ruin as God's judgment comes against it. The fall of every city in time and history is a precursor of the fall of the city of man as Isaiah sees it. The centerpiece of this vision is chapter 24, verse 10, where we see this image. The wasted city is broken down. The word wasted here is a crucial word in the Hebrew language. It's the word tohu. And here's why that's significant. If you dial all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was tohu, formless, and void. This is a word that describes the chaos, the unformedness of the earth before God exerted His creative power. And what Isaiah says is, that's where the city of man is headed, toward decreation. Re-chaosing. Deformity. That's what's on the horizon. Let's see how Isaiah gets us there. Back up to the beginning of chapter 24, verse 1. Behold, The Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. That's a reference to the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. God scattering the peoples. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest. 
As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. What Isaiah wants you to see is God's judgment is coming against this world and it does not discriminate. It doesn't matter whether you are high in society or low in society, whether you're a person of privilege or a person that's underprivileged. God's judgment is coming and it does not discriminate. But notice... In verses 1 through 3, he's talking about the future. He says, the Lord will empty the earth. He's talking about a judgment that is to come. But in verse 4, he shifts to the present tense. The earth mourns and withers. This is really capturing the reality, the same reality that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 when he says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Because see, the judgment of God is future, but it's already being manifested in the present. It's not just future, it's fully future and also actually present in the world. Look at verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. Notice all this language of the earth and the world. The whole created order is groaning under the weight of brokenness. And notice why. Because of its inhabitants. See, it's human beings, it's moral agents who have responsibility before God, who have turned from God and brought this devastation on the world. Again, Paul's just reading Isaiah when in Romans 8 he says, all creation longs for the revealing of the glory of the children of God. Creation suffers the pangs of childbirth until it's redeemed. All of creation experiences the brokenness Because of you and I and our rebellion against God. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. The translation here is a little unfortunate because it makes it seem like primarily what's going on is that we've broken the rules. But the Hebrew is actually much more nuanced than that. It'd be more accurate to say they have transgressed the laws, they have altered the statutes, they have set aside the everlasting covenant. What Isaiah has in view here is not human beings breaking the rules, but human beings shoving God aside and living independently of Him. He says, we've replaced God's morality with our own morality. We've replaced relationship with God with our own relationships and our own pursuit of what we think is satisfying in life. We've replaced responsibility to our Creator with a denial and a removal and an ignoring of our Creator. That's the reality of sin. Sin isn't breaking the rules. It's living as though God is not God. That's what we've done. Therefore, verse 6, a curse devours the earth. Referring back to Genesis 3 and the curse of God on human sin in the beginning. And its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. 
all human suffering, all pain, all hardship, all the things in the world that we wish weren't here, the Bible says ultimately have their source and origin in human sin and rebellion against God. Listen, if you're going to have a worldview, if you're going to have a way of making sense of the world, you have to have a way of making sense of the brokenness of the world. Why is it that there's suffering and pain and hardship and evil in the world? The Bible says those things all exist because they all trace their way back to sin, human rebellion against God. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. There's a theologian who wrote a small book on sin. And the title of the book is, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. That's what Isaiah wants you to see. Hey, everything about your life and the world you live in, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's what proves the reality of sin. That's what proves the reality of a God and sin against God. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, verse 7, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. You see what Isaiah is doing here? He's talking about the reality that in this world, happiness is always temporary and fleeting. What he's saying is, hey, you can go pour yourself a glass of wine. It might take the edge off for a a while. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to wake up tomorrow. You can go put earbuds in your ears or go to a good concert and for a few minutes be captivated by the greatest of human creativity and kind of forget the suffering and brokenness of the world. Here's what happens. The playlist ends. The concert is over and you're back alone with your thoughts in a world that's full of brokenness and pain. All the happiness that we chase after in the city of man is ultimately temporary and fleeting and it doesn't last. And that's what Isaiah is reminding you of. And so it all culminates at verse 10. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. And so sin turns human life back into formlessness, back into emptiness. And what we're left with is a city that's broken down, desolate, not fulfilling, not vibrant, not flourishing. But there's a little hinge and a little hint of hope here at verse 13. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth, among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. If you've ever been around the harvest of citrus or a vineyard or anything that grows on a tree or or on a vine, you know that how this works is the harvesters grow through and they harvest everything they can, but there's always some that's left. There's always a few pieces of fruit that are left behind. That's what Isaiah refers to as the gleanings. And what he's talking about is the idea of the remnant that he's been telling us about throughout this book. That even as God visits the earth with his judgment on sin, there's going to be those who are spared. There are going to be those who, by his grace, experience salvation, 
grace, renewal. And notice what's going to happen, verse 14. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord they shout from the west. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. Isaiah is saying the city of man is doomed. The city of man has been plunged under the curse, the judgment of God. It's coming to an end. It's wasted. It's desolate. But in the midst of that, a remnant will be saved and they're going to glory in and worship the God who saved them. The city of man, my friends, is a wasted city. It's a doomed city. It's a broken city. It's a city that cannot deliver what it promises. And so Isaiah says, don't put your hope there. Why would you live for that city? Why would you put your assets in that city? Now, I know there are some of you here this morning, and and you're skeptical. And so as you hear the Bible and the prophet Isaiah talk about language of judgment and of God visiting the earth with his judgment, something in you just says, yeah, I don't buy it. I'm not convinced. I don't believe in divine judgment. I don't believe in the supernatural. I don't believe that God's going to one day hold everyone to account. If that's you and that's your skepticism this morning, can you at least acknowledge that Isaiah's description of life in the city of man fits exactly what you experience? Is it not true that for you, Happiness is fleeting. Haven't you experienced the reality of strong drink becoming bitter to those who drink it when you wake up the next morning? Haven't you experienced the futility of work where you slave away for something and it seems like you never quite get what you hope for? Haven't you experienced the reality of life in a world that doesn't work the way it seems like it should work? All of this, Isaiah says, is a clue and a hint, and God's grace to you to help you see this is not the way it was meant to be. And to help you wake up to the reality of who God is and what God is doing in the world. The wasted city is broken down. But here's the contrast. Chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, in the day when God visits His judgment on the world. In that day when the wasted city is broken down and left desolate. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. See, there's a different city. A strong city. A lasting city. That God's people delight in and sing about. And so the contrast Isaiah wants to draw for you now is... Now that you've seen the city of man and what it's characterized by and where it's headed, what about the city of God? Can I show you a different city, a strong city, a city that's not desolate? A city that's great, and what makes the city of God great is the fact that God is there. What makes the city of God beautiful is the fact that God is there. Look at chapter 24, verse 23. Then... The moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. 
The sun and the moon, as brightly as they shine, their brightness is going to be sort of lackluster compared to the reality of God reigning in the city of God. The reason it's a great place is because God is there and His glory is there and His beauty is there and all His fullness is there and that's what makes it a place where you want to be. Chapter 25, verse 1. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will praise Your name for You have done wonderful things. The city of God is a great city because it is a city built by God, inhabited by God, for the people of God, where the glory of God and the beauty of God is on display. And so Isaiah wants to show you all the beauty, all the richness, all the fullness of the city of God. And basically all of these chapters are just descriptions of the reality of this city. And so I want to draw out for you six features of the city of God that Isaiah paints for us. Six features of this great city. Now that you've seen the city of man, let's look at the city of God. First of all, the city of God is a place of safety. Because God is the strong protector. Look at chapter 25, verse 3. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor. A stronghold to the needy in his distress. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Are you in distress this morning? Do you need a refuge? Do you need a place of safety? Do you need a place where you're protected, where you're cared for? Where you're not vulnerable, not exposed, but taken care of? God is a stronghold to those who are in distress. God is a protector of the needy. God invites you to the city of God where you're never in danger, where you're never threatened because He is the strong protector. This is His city. The city of God is a place of safety because God is the strong protector. Second, the city of God is a place of feasting. Because God is the generous host. Look at chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow. Of aged wine well refined. Look how the writer is heaping up adjectives to describe the fullness of this experience. The goodness of this food, and drink. Do you like a good meal? Do you like a good party? you like going to a wedding where someone else is paying the bill and they have really good food there? you like when someone hands you a gift certificate and says, hey, go enjoy this restaurant that I found? I want you to notice that Isaiah is describing this feast, and the reason he wants you to lock into this is because The city of God is not a place where you're going to float around on a cloud in some disembodied way. Rather, the city of God is a place where all of your appetites and longings that God put within you find their true fulfillment. It's a place where food is going to taste better and wine is going to taste better and all the things you enjoy in life are going to be richer and fuller and more wonderful. As C.S. Lewis put it, if I find in myself a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy... 
The clearest answer is that I was made for another world. Isaiah says, look, when you sit down and enjoy a good meal in this world, in the city of man, that's just a precursor. It's a hint of what's to come. There's a much better feast, a much greater feast, a much richer feast in the city of God because God is the generous host. Contrast this image with the one in chapter 24 where he says the wine mourns and the vine languishes. Happiness and joy and pleasure in this world is always fleeting. Happiness and joy and pleasure in the city of God is eternal. So look, at the end of this service, just like at the end of every worship service at Cormdale, we're going to observe the sacrament of communion. And when you come to the communion table this morning, Christian, I want you to come recognizing it's a precursor of what's to come. Why do we participate in this meal every week? It's to remind us of the feast that awaits us. It's a hint of what's to come. It's to remind you as you come out of the city around you and gather with the people who are part of the city of God that there's a feast that awaits us that's better and fuller and richer and it's supposed to remind you that this world can't satisfy your appetites. So as you come to communion this morning, come with anticipation, recognizing this is God's down payment as it were on the feast that is to come. The city of God is a place of feasting because God is the generous host. Third, the city of God is a place of joy because God is the mighty victor. Look at verse 7 of chapter 25. And He, God, will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth for the Lord God has spoken. In the city of God, my friends, death will be no more. Tears will be no more. Heaviness and weightiness and burdens will be no more. Why? Because God will swallow it all up. God's taking all of that into Himself and He's triumphing over all of it and He's redeeming and renewing all of it and in the city of God, none of that will be there for you to experience. And look at verse 9. It will be said on that day. Here's what you and I are going to say on that day. Behold, this is our God. We've waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Do you see the emphasis on waiting? What it's saying is, in that day, our waiting will be over. There will be cause for great rejoicing because you and I will realize, oh yeah, this is what we've been hanging on for right here. This is salvation in its full, final experience. Isn't it true that even our joy and our rejoicing in this world is always a broken-hearted rejoicing. Our joy in this world is always tinged with some measure of sorrow. In fact, that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 says, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The reality of our rejoicing in this world is that it always has a hint of sorrow because we always recognize it's still not as good as it should be. It's st things still aren't the way they should be. But in the city of God, 
Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, the waiting is over. Our final enemy, death, will be fully and finally conquered. All sadness, all pain will be wiped away. And so the salvation that we're waiting to experience, the full deliverance from all the brokenness of the world that we await, will be realized and we'll say, oh yeah, this is what we've waited for. This is what God's been out to do. Let's rejoice in Him. The city of God is a place of joy because God is the mighty victor. Sound like a pretty good city so far? We're only halfway there. Got, got three more, all right? Decent place, right? You might want to move there. Just making sure. Number four, the city of God is a place of justice because God is the holy judge. Look at verse 10 of chapter 25. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in this place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. Have you been wronged? Have you been violated? Have you been sinned against? Is there someone somewhere out there in the world who's gotten away with something and left you longing for justice? The city of God is a place of justice because God is the holy judge. Moab shall be trampled down. Remember in Isaiah's lexicon, Moab is an image for those who reject and deny God. Wrongs will be righted. Evil will be avenged. God's people will delight in His full, final, glorious judgment on evil because the city of God is a place of justice. Because God is a holy judge. Now listen. When you come upon a description like this, right? When we're talking about all the beauty of the glory of the city of God, and then you come upon a description of God's justice in the midst of that, that ought to create a complex kind of response in you. There's something in you when you read this that ought to go, I think that's good. Kinda. Here's why that complex response should be present in you. Because among those who are the people of God, there ought to always in this world be a longing for people who don't know God to meet Him and be forgiven and be saved. And so when we read about this, we're like, well, yeah, yeah, I want God to execute justice, but I hope, he, I hope He shows mercy to people. I hope He saves them. I hope He calls them into His family. That's a true and right and good response for you and I to have as long as we live in this world and as long as God is patient. And so here's what you have to understand. Isaiah is talking now about the day when the final curtain has been pulled back and the final judgment has come and now we're living in the city of God. And he's saying on that day, what God's people are going to rejoice in is the glory of his justice. On that day, it's right and good for us to delight in the fact that God is a just God. That God has saved people for himself and that God pours out his justice and judgment on those who are rebellious. Jonathan Edwards preached a brilliant sermon, and the title of it was, The Joy of the Saints in Heaven, or The Joy of the, the Punishment of the Wicked in Hell, No Occasion of Sorrow for the Saints in Heaven. It's a really long title. Uh, and, and his point was this 
once we're there, there's no more sorrow. There's no more tears. There's no more longing for people who aren't saved to be saved because we realize God's patience, God's lavish grace in the world, God's appointed time has finally come, and now it's right for Him to display His justice. So what you feel now will be different from what you feel then. And Isaiah wants you to see the city of God is a place of justice, and that's a good thing. You want to worship for all of eternity a God who is holy and who doesn't let people get away with things. Who really does judge sin and save us from sin by judging our sin on Jesus Christ on the cross. The city of God is a place of justice because God is the holy judge. Fifth, the city of God is a place of worship because God is the gracious Savior. Look, chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. So y'all get, get ready. Potter, we should probably start writing some music for this because this is what we're going to sing. This is the song we're going to sing in the city of God. Right? In that day, here's the song we're going to sing. And I want you to notice, this whole chapter now is a worship song, and it has very little, in fact, nothing to say about our work in salvation, and everything to say about the glory of God and the beauty of God and the grace of God in salvation. Isaiah is a happy Calvinist, and he wants you to be too. He's saying, look, on that day, you're not going to be like, man, I was so awesome to trust in God. Rather, what you're going to boast in and glory in and celebrate for all of eternity is the grace of God in saving sinners and the grace of God in providing a full and final and glorious salvation. Let's just walk through chapter 26 and just grab some snippets of what Isaiah says. Look at verse 1. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. The picture here is of people who've done nothing. We just walked into the city and we're like, oh man, this is pretty great. We did nothing but enter, walk in. It was provided for us. Verse 4, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Verse 7, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. So even the joy of walking in obedience and righteousness is something God provides as he makes our way level. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. We want to glorify you. We want to praise you. We want to delight in your name. We want to remember all that you've done. That's what brings delight to our souls. Verse 12, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. You have indeed done for us all our works. All the good things that you allowed us to do, God, you did them for us. They're a result of your grace. Verse 15, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. Verse 18, we have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. This is a vision of the final resurrection, all God's people who have died throughout all of history, being resurrected to glorify and praise Him and exalt in His glorious salvation. The city of God will be a place of worship because God is a gracious Savior. 
Why should we worship? Because of what God has done by His grace. He's done it all. And so we're going to celebrate and rejoice in His salvation. And listen, this is what ought to drive passionate worship for us right now. Today, this week, this year, the reason when we gather on Sundays we ought to worship passionately is because we serve a God who saves us by grace. You're not here because you're smarter than other people. You're not here because you're more religious than other people. You're not here because you had the wisdom to figure out all the good news of the gospel. You're here because God in His grace showed mercy to you. God opened up the city and you entered in and therefore we worship and rejoice. Finally, number six. The city of God is a place of true diversity. Because God is a global redeemer. The city of God is a place of true diversity because God is a global redeemer. Look at chapter 27, verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. Here's why this is good news. Perhaps you remember all the way back in Isaiah chapter 5, Trent preached a sermon on it, I think, back in March. When God said, let me tell you a parable, let me tell you a story about my vineyard. I cleared out the land, I picked the best spot, planted this vine in the best soil, expected it to bear fruit, and I came and looked, and you know what it bore? Rotten fruit. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to uproot it. I'm going to tear it out. So now we've gone from a picture of God's vineyard, which has borne nothing but rotten fruit, to a picture of A vine that takes root, blossoms, and fills the whole world with fruit. Why? Because Jesus, the true vine, has been planted. In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom, and fill the whole world with fruit. And look where this ends up, verse 13. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria... And those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. This is a picture of the massive ingathering of the people of God from all the nations of the world. The city of God is going to be a place of true diversity. God's gathering people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and they're all going to populate the city of God and we're going to be there together. Listen, do you like diversity? Do you love other cultures? Do you love interfacing with people who speak different languages and eat different kinds of food and have different customs? Then you're going to love the city of God. Because all the fruit and all the beauty of all human cultures will be there and all without sin and all without competition and all without ethnocentrism and all without judging one another. All the beautiful fruit of all the cultures of the world for the glory of God. So this is the picture that Isaiah paints for us. See the city of man. See that it's a wasted city, a desolate city, a broken city. See the city of God. See that it's a place of safety. A place of feasting. A place of joy. A place of justice. A place of worship. A place of true diversity because God is there. And this is what God is like. What a great city. 
why would you not want to live there? What would keep you from moving out of Babylon and into Zion? What would keep you from giving up your assets in the city of man and instead finding yourself a spot in the city of God? Isn't this a better city than the one you're in? I mean, Omaha's great, don't get me wrong, but it's not the city of God. How do we get into this city? So Isaiah's shown us, here's the city of man, here's the city of God, but how, how do we get from here to there? How do we get from the city of man to the city of God? The answer the story of the Bible gives us is that we get there through the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, the problem with the city of man, did you, did you catch what the problem of the city of man is? It's not that the roads are kind of bad and there's potholes or that the politicians are corrupt. Do you know what the problem is? We're there. And we're corrupted by sin, right? The problem with the city of man is people who are made in the image of God and yet have rebelled against God and become their own gods. That's what's wrong with the city of man. So to find a way out of the city of man and into the city of God, we need redeemed and renewed people who are fit to inhabit the city of God. And so what did God do? He sent Jesus from the city of God to the city of man. Jesus came and took on human form, but Jesus is the only person in human history to live a life without sin. A life that's not marked and stained by rebellion against God, by seeking to be his own God. Rather, he lived a life of perfect obedience in our place. He died to bear the curse of sin, to take upon himself the curse that God placed on the world because of sin. He bore that for those who will trust in him. He rose in victory to prove that God really will swallow up death forever because he swallowed up death in the Lord Jesus. And then Jesus, after he did all that work, standing in our place, the head of a new humanity to populate a new city. After he did all that, he ascended back into heaven. And here's what he told his disciples. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to get the city ready. I'm going to go help. I'm kind of like the general contractor. God is the architect, Hebrews says. So Jesus is going to get some stuff ready in the city of God. And, and, and he also told his disciples, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. I am the gate. I'm the way from here to there. Through faith in me, through trust in me, through being united with me, you can come from the city of men to the city of God. Jesus gave to his church the keys to that city. He told his disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what those keys are is simply the preaching of the gospel. When the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, God's opening up the city of God. He's saying, hey, do you see the feast I'm laying out here? This is available to you. You see the beauty and the justice and the glory of this place? This is open to all of you who would trust in Jesus Christ and come in through him. This is the city that I'm making available to you. Won't you come in? Won't you come in? Isaiah wants you to move from the city of man to the city of God. He wants you to trust in Jesus that you might experience all the joy and the blessing of living in the city you've always longed for. There's one more picture that I want to paint for you, Quorum Deo, as we close this morning. One more picture that I want to put in your mind, and it's this. The city of God is not merely future. 
the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and went to prepare a place for us and sent his spirit means the city of God is being prepared now. And what that means is that the people of God, the church of God, wherever it exists, in every context in which it exists, is a little foretaste of that city. The church is to be a city within the city. The city of God within the city of man. It's a little micro city where all the richness and goodness of the city of God is present and on display. Not in all the beauty that it will be, but, it, but it's recognizable enough to point the way in that direction. That's what we are to be as the people of God. Let me use the language quote from Harvey Kahn, a longtime professor of theology and church planting. Here's how he puts it. On a tract of earth's land, purchased with the blood of Christ, Jesus, the kingdom developer, has begun building new housing. As a sample of what will be, he has erected a model home of what will eventually fill the urban neighborhood. He now invites the urban world into that model home to take a look at what will be. The church is the occupant of that model home, inviting neighbors into its open door to Christ. In this model home, we live out our new lifestyle as citizens of the heavenly city that one day will come. I can't say it better than that. That's what we are to be as the people of God. A little model home that points the way to the development that is to come when Jesus builds his kingdom. So let me just ask you to apply this very specifically and very directly to your gospel community. Your missional community, the little sub-community that you're a part of within the community that is Quorumdale Church. Are you a recognizable reflection of the city of God? Is your community recognizable as a model home of the development that Jesus is building? Is your missional community a place of safety where no one has anything to fear? Because the gospel is there, where people can be who they really are with all the junk that they have in their lives and don't have to fear being judged or excluded because the gospel is there. Is your missional community a place of feasting where you enjoy good food, good drink, physically, but also where you feast spiritually on the good news of the gospel? Is it a place that's known as a place of feasting and celebration? Is your gospel community a place of joy where God's victory over death and sin is celebrated? Is it a place of justice where you look out for the poor and the needy and the vulnerable? And where you call sin, sin. Where we don't develop our own definitions of what is good, bad, right, wrong, but where rather we submit to what God has said. Is your gospel community a place of worship where people actually delight in the grace of God? Does worship ever break out in your gospel community? Or does that only happen here because we have a band and that's what we're supposed to do? It's okay to sing without a band. It's okay to sing off-key, even. Is your gospel community a place of true diversity where not everyone looks the same? Where not everyone has the same hobbies and the same interests and the same sort of cultural background and demographic? We are 
God's demonstration community of the rule of Christ. We are the city of God within the city of man. We as a church, by the grace of God, as the renewing goodness of the Holy Spirit and the gospel are here, ought to be growing every week, every month to look a little bit more recognizable as a foretaste of the city of God. Let's pray for God to do that among us. Would you join me? Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring the prophet Isaiah to paint this picture for us. Thanks for this accurate description of the brokenness and the frailty of the city of man. Thanks for this picture of the beauty and the life and the fullness of the city of God. And Father, I pray that this morning we would love less the city of man and love more the city of God and the God who reigns there. Would you this morning pull our affections off of the things of the city of man and put them onto the beauty of who you are and what you are doing in the world. Your gracious salvation that you've provided in Christ. God, this morning I pray that you would capture people in this room in a way that would make them leave behind the city of man, trust savingly in Jesus Christ, and take up residence in the city of God. Would you do that this morning by your Spirit? And God, for all of us, would you help us long more for this city and live more with this city in view and love one another better that we might more fully and faithfully reflect the city of God within the city of man. God, we want to see Omaha be a great city, a renewed city, a city that begins to display more and more of your goodness in the world. So would you help us to be a faithful little city within our larger city that we might point the city to Jesus so that you might be glorified and honored and so that we might, with many, many people around us, rejoice in your salvation for your glory. Amen.